Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. Welcome listeners to The Ferment. Uh, we're very excited uh, today to have with us Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Uh, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove is a uh, founder of an intentional community in Durham, North Carolina called Rootba House, named after uh, a community that took him in uh, in Iraq uh, when he was there with a peace team and uh, they were... Uh, extended incredible hospitality after they had a car accident even though uh, their government was uh, had had bombed the very hospital that they were uh, uh, receiving care in um, and so when he returned to the United States uh, he and his his wife Leah they started a community called Rupa House Jonathan's been very active in the new monastic scene uh, which is a kind of a an intentional community movement uh, in North America also very involved politically in the uh, the Moral Monday movement uh, with the the Reverend uh, Dr. William Barber, and then also the uh, the Poor People's Campaign uh, that really took off where Martin Luther King left off 50 years ago uh, with the uh, repairs of the breach movement. So we're we're just really excited to have have him on. Um, I had a chance to interview him. He was in Winnipeg giving a a, a spiritual retreat for seekers and activists at a at a local monastery outside of Winnipeg and that was something I didn't want to miss and uh, then while I was there he was very generous with his time and uh, and gave a, a lengthy interview uh, after he had already given a, a full retreat. So it was a great conversation and uh, yeah Alana wasn't able to be there uh, that particular day but I'm glad she's here now and she, there's one of her songs that speaks I think especially to uh, the kind of stuff that Jonathan's up to. And uh, Alana, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so that song, well, it was kind of spurred on by one of the many notoriously terribly unthoughtful and crude remarks of the President of the United States. Back in uh, January, I guess January 2018, when uh, a number of countries... Uh, around the world were referred to as shitholes. <laughs> and oh. it was just, it, I mean, it's one of those things where the way I see it is he's sort of like this symbol of all that makes us terrible <laughs> um, and isn't sta- isn't standing alone in that. Um, and so it it got me thinking, you know, in my travels and whatever, how even here in Canada and the U.S., the emphasis on getting the cream of the crop from uh, people like for immigration around the world. It's, if you've got a Ph.D., you're a lot more welcome here than um, if you're looking for sure. uh, a bowl of soup. <laughs> and so he said it in a very crass way, but n- also in his, you know, strange, twisted way, named a truth and it mm. it got me thinking about um a lot of things and I, and i was thinking about the beatitudes and how you know it's like supposed to be one of the cornerstones of our tradition and how we bastardize it <laughs> we like twist it we don't um follow it we don't and and so i i wrote a lament about it, sort of mm. calling it out, going, okay, well, 
It sure doesn't look like, you know, blessed are the poor. It sure doesn't look like blessed are the merciful. We're in a time where people like that are mocked. And so that's where that song comes from. And I think it, you know, aligns with the Poor People's Campaign and what Reverend Barber and Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove are doing. It's just kind of, it's not questioning the Beatitudes in the sense that in the long, you know, moral arc of the universe, (laughs) it bends Mm. toward justice. But in, in the moment when you see the price some people have to pay, it gets very disheartening. And so, so that song is, it's a lament. Yeah. And I, I just, I think that's, that's one of the things that, that our artists do for us and that, and that our scriptures do for us that I think particularly us progressives have, have lost the capacity for lament. uh, And and comedy. (laughs) And yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Um, And, uh, I, yeah, I think it's it's a profound act and a and a really he- healing act in in the face of some of the absurdity that that we're we're in. So we're glad you've joined us for this episode, and uh, we would really appreciate if you could head over to iTunes when you're done and leave a rating for the podcast. That helps uh, raise the profile of the podcast so that more people who want to be engaging in these sorts of conversations can find us. That would be great. We would also love to hear some of your responses to the interview. You can reach us by email at thefermentpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, which is at thefermentcast. And the episodes are available on Google Play, Spotify, and iTunes. And you can also tune in on our website, theferment.ca. We hope to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy this interview with Jonathan. Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, welcome to The Ferment. Thank you. Good to be with you. This is exciting. So I think the first time I ever saw you was you were a you were a keynote speaker at the 50th anniversary the jubilee of reba place mm, yeah. fellowship in chicago in chicago so reba is for folks that don't know it's kind of a grandmother community to uh a loose network mm-hmm. um some well some of the new it's like an onion you know it's like tighter on the inside and then mm-hmm. their influence spreads outward into a, a circle of christian intentional communities across the land mm-hmm including one here in Winnipeg that I had some connection with. Mm-hmm. And so we came down to the, the anniversary. And I, th- I think already then you would have been, like that's a while ago, I think that was before my daughter was even born. She's 17. So you would have been in your 20s? At thir- yeah, yeah. But you, I remember you seemed kind of like a, a wise old man then already <laughs> who was quoting, uh, you know, ad lib from the, the Desert Mothers and Fathers and talking about the, the Benedictine vows of, of stability and, and conversatio and, uh, what's the third one? Help me. Conversatio, uh, stability, and obedience. And obedience. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, we don't want to remember obedience, do we? Um, well, it was good to be there for that. I mean, yeah. I remember that as a kind of family reunion of the of the Christian community movement and people who had been doing this a long time. And that was, the new monastic movement was kind of just beginning to articulate itself around that time. Well, you know, I I think the language was starting to get used 
more broadly at that time. Mm. I was trying to use it to describe what they were celebrating was at least 50 years old and was probably a little older than that. I mean, I, I, I really think, you know, the oldest, um, intentional Christian community in the United States is, um, Koinonia Farm in mm. Georgia and they're, they're celebrating their 75th anniversary this year. So, so I think this kind of thing, I mean, Koinonia, Catholic worker, those start about the same time. Um, I think this kind of thing has been going on for some time, but, um, to call it a new monasticism was uh, to try to connect that stirring of the spirit within the church with this longer tradition of monastic movements, um, offering a way of, of uh, these kind of expressions to be in relationship with the institution. You know. And so you've stayed connected with that, but in more recent years, you've also become uh, associated with another movement, the Moral Monday movement, mm. uh, out of North Carolina, very mm. much a street-level political movement. Mm-hmm. And I think most people associate monasticism with a kind of withdrawal mm. from the world. Yeah. And politics with kind of like getting down and dirty mm-hmm. with things. It seems like for you somehow those two can hold each other, feed each other. Yeah, and yeah. I, I would just love for you to talk about those two parts of your life and, and, and how they, they stand in, in connection with each other. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I should say that I was mentored by William Barber before I ever met the Benedictines. So in some ways, uh, mm. that conversation is older to me in my life, in my mind, yeah, yeah. Than, than a conversation with Benedictines about monasticism. But at any rate, uh, these have been two parallel streams in my life. And I think for me, it's, it's always about how do we live out our faith? And we have to live it out in terms of our lifestyle choices, in terms of how our families and our communities are living. But those things don't happen in a vacuum, right? There's there's always a broader cultural and political structure. And I think when uh, the Rupa House intentionally uh, chose to uh, accompany this historic African-American community in Durham, uh, what we learned was that those systemic powers... Uh, bear down on people's lives in a way that we we mm. can't check out mm. from that mm. right most of us who came there were white people but we joined uh with an african-american community and and really began to learn to read the gospel in light of the way they had been reading it and in that tradition there's no way of being christian without being political right because um, it's just it's a way, it's all, you're carrying it around on your back everywhere you go. Yeah. If God brought Israel out of Egypt and God wanted to set us free from slavery, and since that was a, you know, <laughs> that was a very political issue as it was fought out in the 19th century, there's never been a black church in public that hasn't been political. Now, there certainly are today those that, you know, mm, that, mm, that mm. seep into this kind of divide between the uh, uh, privatized religion and the public faith, but the, but the, but the, but the notion that you can be apolitically Christian is always going to be suspect to people who were enslaved uh, mm. and, and, and met Jesus in that context. Right. Because yeah. to say nothing about the status quo is to leave the oppressive That's right. structure in, That's in right. place. That's right. That's right. And I see this in, I mean, I see it in Benedict. I see it in the tradition. Certainly there have been times when the monastic traditions have been very comfortable with power and have thereby been compromised. But during those times, there have always been renewal movements within the monastic tradition because 
I think that monasticism, while uh, it is intentionally not worldly, that is, it's not, uh, it's, it's rejecting the sort of favors and customs of the world system, monasticism has always been aware of the political realities that bear on people's lives. And so, uh, you know, you get St. Francis, you know, walking yep. through the enemy yep. lines yep. to yep. sit down with the sultan and say, look, our gospel is about peace. If Christians are fighting Muslims, I'm going to go sit down with the Muslims. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, I, think, um, I think there's always a political side to monastic tradition. That reminds me, there's a, there's a Canadian writer named Andrew Nikiforic. I don't know if you ever come across him. He was, he was the first one to, uh, to really name in a public volume the tar sands as the tar sands in a really mm-hmm. powerful way. And he wrote a, a sequel kind of to that not long ago, which has this, what's it called? It, there's this, it has this image of, sl- of being enslaved. Uh, the energy of slaves, I think is the name of the book. Mm-hmm. And of all things, he ends the book with a reflection on the rule of St. Benedict, Mm. because he sees in Benedict this radical challenge of the structure of the the kind of the the nobility that does no physical work and the common people that do do physical work Mm -hmm. in the monastery, you know, whether you've come from this class background or that class background, everybody studies, everybody prays, and everybody does physical work. That's right. And Nikephoric really sees this as, as a way for those of us that have become addicted to the cheap energy of, mm. of oil, mm. which is another kind of way of enslaving the, the yeah. world, really. Yeah. Um, making the earth our slave. Making the earth our slave. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Wendell Berry has an, I mean, mm. he uses the N word, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what we've done to the earth mm-hmm. as a way of making that link really, yeah. Yeah. really direct. Yeah. So, so there's lots of like, yeah, lots of resonance, Mm -hmm. um, with all these themes for myself. Like, I think a lot of people that are doing, uh, this podcasting, at least that that I listen to, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of what I call like recovering evangelicals. Yeah. And for me, that's a, that's a long story, my relationship to the church, but really it's nothing I feel like I need to recover from. Mm -hmm. But if anything, if I'm a recovering anything, I think I'm a recovering activist. Yeah. And so I kind of want to put myself before you, Jonathan, because you are an activist. Like evangelize me for activism again. Like, (laughs) because the, the, and and my stumbling block with it is has to do with political power and the machinations thereof and, Coming from the Mennonite tradition, which is at this long, very suspicious relationship to, you know, identifying government with the sword, and the sword is yeah. nothing for us Christians. Right. Yeah. Um, and I remember listening to a sermon by your collaborator and mentor, Reverend Barber, mm-hmm. at uh, what is it, Wild Goose Festival? Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. And he brought out this quote from Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just it just hit me in the middle of the chest mm. in terms of this it just named this unresolved dilemma yeah. for me where so King is talking about how Nietzsche has given us this sense of you know Christianity is about the renunciation of power mm-hmm. and and Nietzsche wants to turn that on his head and say yeah. you know the will yeah, to power yeah, like yeah. that's that's how you get things done that's how yeah. you self yeah. manifest mm-hmm. and King is wanting to treat that as a kind of false dichotomy, mm-hmm. and he says, "Justice and the fight for justice mm-hmm. is what love looks like in public." Yeah. And he has this line about love without power yeah. is anemic yeah. and sentimental, 
And I just went, whoa, is that, like, if I'm going back to my Mennonite roots of Mm. the quiet in the land, Mm. and, I mean, I'm old enough, I I marched against two Gulf Wars and said, no blood for oil, and then saw, you know, went home to my parents' basement where my whole life was an oil addiction, Mm. Mm. and kind of went, I need to do something else, and that's how I've sort of ended up on this subsistence food kind of thing but i hear someone like barber Mm -hmm. talking to me across the internet which i do have on my (laughs) farm yeah and it's like oh so i think what i'm afraid of is equating there's this fight going on where you know christians on the right say well if you're a real christian yeah clearly you should vote for republicans Mm because they are the ones who care about abortion Uh, and I, I don't know how many other issues they're really strong on in making a connection to the gospel. Uh, and I hear keeping, folks keep, like you keeping gay people down is the new. Keep, oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Right, right. right. Keep it, yeah, I, so, so I, for me, I don't even connect with that with the gospel anymore. Yeah. But I, yes, I can see how some people still do. Mm-hmm. God bless them. And then folks like yourself, mm-hmm. it does. You don't come out and say it, but it does. See, you do seem to imply that, like, to get with the issues of, you know, mass incarceration and the way in which that really is a continuation of the racist yeah. power structure, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Like voting Democrat seems to be the the thing. To, but I feel like what you are up to is. You're ready to get in there for as much as good as can come out of that way of engaging, but there's there's something deeper and something more. Yeah. Barber talks about, I'm not trying to take you left or right. I'm trying to take you somewhere moral. Yeah. To higher ground. Articulate that can, for is, us. Is there something that can take us to higher ground in the public square? In the public square, yes. That's the yes. question we've been asking. I mean, you... you, have, you you have made a decision that is essentially about integrity. How can I live a life of integrity? Yeah. How yeah, can I live yeah, yeah. in such a way that my life is not a contradiction of the basic things I believe? Right. Yes. And that's that's absolutely crucial. But we have to have some public integrity, right? I mean, uh, and and a part of what I hear you struggling with is the liberalism of activist culture, right? You know, I I can't be a conservative because I was one for long enough to realize that it's all uh, trapped up in, in corporate interests. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I worked for Strom Thurmond when I was a teenager in the U.S. Senate. So, right. you know, I, I know both the racism and the uh, corporate individualism that fuels that whole thing. So the religious right, I, I you know, I, I, I saw the bankruptcy of the religious right when I was still a teenager. But I can't be, uh, I can't be a liberal activist either. Because to me, that's not, it, it, it's, it, it's not a thick enough description of what we want to become. So the, the, the reason I think a moral movement is essential is that there's some truth in a lot of these, you know, issue-based advocacy things uh-huh, that are going on. Uh-huh. People who say, you know, the, the, re- the, the reason I'm mad, the reason I'm here in the street, the reason I have something to say is because this touches me. And it touches me deeply. And what uh, fusion organizing is about is saying, you know, what is it that's touching you? What are the powers that are doing that? And realizing that those are connected, right? That the that in some way, 
the same forces in our world that are, you know, enslaving the earth, like mm, we were talking mm, about mm. earlier, are also uh, using the labor of immigrants and then uh, making them disposable when we feel like we don't need them, uh, closing borders, opening borders, shoving people, you know, to the corner. It's the same uh, forces that are uh, gentrifying communities, that are displacing people, that are causing wars around the world. And uh, at some point, that Reverend Barber loves to say, at some point we have to recognize if they're cynical enough to stay together, we have to be smart enough to come together, right? So to, to invite people mm. to, to, to recognize, you know, what uh, Audre Lorde called the intersectionality of these issues, but to, but to also see that in our marginalization and our uh, fragmentation around these injustices, that this basic truth of the gospel comes through, which is that those people who've been rejected are the building blocks of a reconstructed society. So so moral fusion organizing is about inviting mm. people to come together around a moral agenda that uh, affirms what is true about them but lifts them above just fighting for themselves, lifts, yes. them, lifts them into an imagination of a society that looks a lot like what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. And, of course... The violence of uh, government in a broken world is messy, and uh, we, we have to be, I think, uh, very careful about the way that we uh, impose that on people. But in a democracy that, such as uh, we have here in the West, I think we, we have to acknowledge that uh, there is a power struggle and to leverage the non-violent power for good that exists in all people, no matter what your you know persuasion or reason for being there, to leverage that power uh, to to try to pursue a moral agenda in the public square is is righteous action. That's moral resistance, and it's uh it's deeply important at a moment like this. So, so that's why I'm both a, a, a dedicated, intentional community new monastic and a uh, moral activist in the street. What do you think is the the best we can hope for from the state? Like, it's it's not hard for me to see the ways in which the state can hurt people, alienate people. It's harder for me to see how the church can, I mean, how the state, pardon me, can manifest love, compassion, the 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 positive juices of the beloved community. Well, what is the best we can hope for from? Well, I mean, what is the state? It reminds me of this quote from Augustine when he said, you know, in a sermon one time, he said, you know, they say the times are evil, the times are evil. He looks at the congregation and says, we are our times. I mean, the, the state is, in a democratic society, at least the way we imagine it, the state is a, a public agreement about how we're going to live together, about how we're going to, I mean, conservatives never love to hear it this way, but the, the reality is there, no matter how conservative you are, it's, the state is about how we are going to redistribute our resources, right? We take taxes out of people's income checks. We take them out of, you know, corporate filings. We, 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 we take these taxes and we decide together what we're going to do with them. Now, these Christian folk, I was at a conference several years ago, and this brother got very excited about arguing that the church needed to be about business development because uh, that created economic power for people. And he was, and he was trying to argue that the church spends most of its money on, hmm, hmm. you know, from, from tithes. Yeah. The church yeah. spends most of that money on, you know, 
hunger programs yeah, or this yeah. or that, but uh, but only a very little bit on economic development. And so he he thought that the churches should be exhorted to do that. And I said that's fine. I agree. I mean, churches should be involved in economic development for sure. But I but I but I knew that this guy was a sort of conservative Christian who doesn't believe that the 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 state should be very involved in addressing these systemic issues. And I said. Um, I said, you know, uh, I know we say we need to tithe 10% because that's what the scriptures say, but I've read the data. I know that Christians in the United States give roughly 2.5% of their income to the church. I said, you're, you're, you're having an argument about how the church should uh. spend 2.5% of its own members' money when the government is always having a conversation about how we're going to spend roughly 30% of what everybody in the country makes, and, and that has a huge impact on everyone's life. You know, certainly we should have something to say about yeah, that. Yeah. And that it, it doesn't have to in any way be um, exclusive to Christians. That's what I think the moral movement has really helped a, a lot of people in North Carolina and around the country now to see, is that to to articulate a moral vision for the common good that is rooted deeply in our faith traditions and in the Constitution is not in any way to exclude our Muslim neighbors or our Jewish mm. neighbors or, mm, or mm, our mm. neighbors of, you know, no particular faith at all. They, they might be atheists, but but they believe in, you know, some kind of moral integrity to uh, the universe and to our common life. And and so uh, to come together around a moral agenda is to, is to give us uh, uh, a vision for our common life. And my, my concern for Christians who want to check out of that is that if we don't have any vision for our common life, then it seems to me we end up being, uh, uh, caught up in, on these co- sort of small cultural boats yep. that are floating in the that's, sea. That's what my people have yeah. done for and a long time. And it's, and it's, and it's the best good we can do is to uh, love our own and offer hospitality when, um, and yeah. just, which is not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but if, if, if all you can do is love your own and offer hospitality in a world where, um, mm-hmm. where literally, you know, the oceans are going to rise and drown millions of people mm. with, yeah. within your and my lifetime. Uh, if something radical doesn't change, then love your neighbor mm. becomes about more than feeding the person who shows up at your door. Mm. You know, it's uh, it's it's a serious issue about whether we have a capacity to love our neighbor on the other side of the planet. I think, like for from for the tradition I come out of, the piece I think where we have the biggest trouble is that you know one definition of the state is that the state is that body through which force can be legitimately applied mm-hmm. in society. Mm-hmm. You know, the police officer can legitimately carry a gun. Yeah. And and that's and that's the piece that I just get so stuck on. Mm-hmm. But it's I, I think to keep for that to, for me to just stay in the boat and stay home that doesn't feel right either. Yeah, I mean there's a, there's no denying that any large group of people, people who don't each know one another and have a deep relationship with each other, which you know describes any city that you yeah, visit, yeah, yeah. Uh, even less a state or a nation. There's no denying the fact that in such a situation, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be some some way of working that out. And you know, 
the so-called justice system that states and nations set up to to deal with that uh, is inherently violent. But I don't think that that means that people who are committed to nonviolence can't get involved and, uh, for example, work really hard to create restorative justice mm-hmm, practices mm-hmm, within mm-hmm. that system, right? So, um, yeah, people who are in touch with those who are suffering from the injustice of those systems to the extent that we stand alongside them and say, you know, right now in the United States, uh, I mean, there's there's people in the streets in uh, Ferguson and St. Louis today mm, because mm, of this, mm, you know, mm. one more verdict. We have, you know, two or three every week of police involved, uh, police shooting black folks, brown folks, and there being no accountability. You know, the way the law is written almost guarantees that there's no accountability. Yeah. There's no yeah. way to change no. that without changing the law and changing the culture and changing the practices of how communities are policed. And there's no way to do that without getting involved. No. doesn't mean you have to endorse the violence to reduce the violence. And I think that's what a moral movement has to be about. It has to be about creating the kind of pressure that compels people in power to realize that it would be easier to do good than to continue doing evil. Mm. And that's where... I think a movement can have real impact. Of course, a movement never gets all that it wants. But if you get some of what you want, you've, right. got, you've gotten more yep. than you would have had otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, that, and, that, and those, are, those increments are real. And they, they do make real improvements. I want to tell you a, a story. Maybe you've heard this story before. Because it, it, uh, I had to think of it when I was reading about your community, mm-hmm. which is this house of hospitality brings people that you have not known, mm-hmm. that have come to you through various ways, and, mm-hmm. and they become part of the household in mm-hmm. a very real way, and not in a kind of uh, service provider, client relationship, but, but yeah. something that is really sisterly, brotherly mm-hmm. togetherness. So a teacher who's become really important to me is a guy named Ivan Illich, and, he, mm-hmm. and a, a very important moment and story for him is when the church is first mandated uh, by the state to set up houses of hospitality, Sinodokia, mm. mm-hmm. as a way of of institutionalizing a a widespread Christian practice, which mm-hmm. was each Christian home would have a, a candle and a bit of bread and, mm-hmm. a, and a spare mattress to be ready to receive Christ yeah. in the guise of the stranger. Mm-hmm. Should the old Christ room, the old Christ room. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at the time of this tra- transition, John the Golden Tongued mm-hmm. is preaching vehemently against this institutionalization mm-hmm. because his prediction is if you if you turn this this practice of the Christian home into something out there, mm-hmm. then Christians will cease to practice it at home, yeah. and he he puts it as starkly as and they will cease. To be Christian homes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that you, Jonathan, actually live in what John the Golden Tongued would consider a Christian home, mm. and there would be few and far between through the land, mm. you know, according to to his criteria. Mm-hmm. And yet, while doing that, you are calling for 
the the state to become in the redistribution of 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 goods and the kind of mm-hmm. public manifestation of of charity that 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 the golden tongued mm-hmm. you know John was so worried would mm-hmm. cease to become part of a, a Christian practice. Yeah, see, I know my neighbors. Ah, uh, I know my neighbors well enough to know they're better at hospitality than we've ever been. Uh, there have been several times when people come, were coming home from prison, wanted to stay with us for one reason or another. We had to say no to somebody, and we learn, you know, a week later that they're staying uh, on the next block down on somebody's couch. I trust my neighbors to practice hospitality, whether they go to church or not. Mm. They're practicing hospitality. The reason I advocate a moral agenda in the public square is that I know that they would do better with their money than the corporations are doing. Mm. If they got a living wage for that job they work at McDonald's, mm. um, you see, McDonald's says they can't pay them 15 an hour or they won't have enough profits to give to their investors, right? Mm. But I, I can see what their investors are doing with that money, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I've, uh-huh. I, I, uh-huh. I've, I've been in some of those palaces, right? I've, I've been on some of those streets in Florida and in Southern California and other places. You know, I, I, I know a little bit about how those folks live and about their vision for the world. And I trust that money way more with my neighbors than I trust it with them. Mm. You know, there are 85 people in this world who own enough, uh, money, property, you know, the way we count it. Yeah. Their net worth is the same as, as, as half of the world's population. 85 people have a net worth equal to that of the, the of pharaohs the, of never the, had it so good. Of the lower half of the population. And that kind of radical uh, inequality yeah. is a setup for violence. It is violence. It, it is violence. It's violence to the people who are poor, and it guarantees violence against the people who are rich, which they know, which is why security is such a huge business. People who have that kind of wealth understand people hate me. uh People hate me and wouldn't care about hurting me to get a little bit of what I have. Yeah. So it's violent for everyone. You know? and, I, and, and, and I in no way want the government to take over the responsibility of every, not just Christian household, but every mm. human being to, you know, be good neighbors. That's, that's not in any way what I would advocate for the government to do. I want the government to guarantee that corporations pay their fair share. I want the government to guarantee uh, that, uh, uh. That, 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 that people earn a living wage, that people have health insurance. I mean, I don't have to worry about this up here, but, that, but look, and that, that's, and that that's not anti-business, right? People down in the United States say that it, that it would ruin business to guarantee health insurance for people. I said, look, I go to Vancouver about once a year. I don't know anywhere in the world that has more small businesses than a city in Canada. Because if you have health insurance, you can you can have a restaurant. You can you know, have a little shop that sells stuff that you make in your garage or whatever. Like, like this is one of the huge costs that means yeah. that Walmart is taking over America because mm. they have the corporate structure. Uh, and they have the, this is the other thing, they are, they are the vehicle for corporate welfare, right? I mean... Walmart exists because of welfare. 
these same people who always want to attack welfare, there is no possible way that they could pay people who work full-time to do Uh that if the government was not providing them food stamps and Section 8 vouchers. And this is what makes Walmart possible. And so why shouldn't uh, Christians and other people have enough moral imagination to say that uh, we demand, as a government that is, you know, at least in name, run by the people, we demand that the that the government guarantee justice in these basic relationships that have to be regulated by somebody. That's why we have a government. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I'm not as worried about the violence of the state, which is real, but, you know, it's going to be there. It's a, it's a reality of human existence. I'm not as worried about getting involved in that as I am about the violence that is committed by corporations and by the state in a context where people uh, have, have left a moral vacuum. You've written uh, or helped co-write a book of common prayer mm-hmm. and another book which is subtitled uh, Why We Practice a Common Faith. Mm-hmm. Previous people who did those sort of things have uh, denominations named after them now. Uh, <laughs> I don't... I don't see you trying. Oh, gonna happen. I don't know. I don't. I don't see you trying to cultivate a, a tribe of mm-hmm. Wilson Hart Grovians. Mm-hmm. So a terribly I'm, long name. Yeah. <laughs> my son. Our, well, old, our oldest son, when he went to kindergarten, said he came home crying the first day. Said we have to write our name every day. My name is the longest name in the class. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you're going to get persecuted for one reason or another. Why not? Why not for being called a Wilson Hart Grovian? Um, but but seriously, I'm curious about the Christian commons that you see yourself speaking into and and maybe even trying to speak into being mm-hmm. by by creating those kinds of resources. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we have a lot of big denominations, and if you talk to them, they all know they're declining, right? So... As I look to the future of a life of faith in the North American context, one of the things I know is that those denominational institutions are not going to be what they've been in the past. I'm not saying they're going to go away, but they're not, they're not going to have the same no. capacity to have, you know, networks and national offices and other things. And in my read of how the church developed in North America with these large, powerful national institutions after World War II, it does have a lot to do with American power in the, you know, economic sense of kind of neoliberal global economic order that came to be. The church was very tied up in that. Hmm. And uh, and these institutions in some way mirror the institutions of the development of that world. Right. We're, we're also trying to spread our brand. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the reasons monastic wisdom and the patterns of the early church and other things like that have been interesting to me is that uh, I just I just don't see those things being there in that way for the church. Uh, I mean, we can argue about whether it was ever faithful. I mean, I, I love you know people who were always questioning it, like Clarence Jordan. Clarence Jordan went and visited one of these big steeple churches that came up, you know, in the '60s, and the pastor was showing him around, and he uh, he pointed to the big cross they had up on the wall and he said he said you might not believe it dr jordan but that that cross there cost us ten thousand dollars he said it's a shame (laughs) jesus got his for free (laughs) (laughs) 
have always been people who've questioned, you know, this just just based on the on the basic, you know, contradiction of its uh, of it as a as a playing out of uh, the gospel message, and I think that's deeply valuable. Uh, it's always good to see that something isn't going to work before you get too far into it. But I think we're also far enough into it now that we can see that it's just not going to last. And mm-hmm. so part of the question is for people who have come to faith and who've come to understand their faith in the midst of those institutions, where are they going to land, right? How are they going to understand themselves to continue to be Christian after those sort of trappings of Christianity are gone? And uh, and that's why I'm very interested in patterns of prayer, prayer practice that are household-based, that, you know, invite people to to raise up their children and sustain their own faith in a kind of practice of prayer mm. that, that it's sustainable at a household level. Mm. I'm interested in a in a kind of catechism that introduces people to the faith in terms of the patterns of faith that they live out in their households and in their neighborhoods and that's sustainable uh, even if there's not a you know, national church, whatever your denomination yeah. wants to be. So, yeah, and, and I think those things are tools and practices that are very translatable across traditions. So uh, I find people care, you know, less and less about denominationalism and, and even about the kind of traditional conservative and liberal divides in theology and, and Christian conversation and more about, like, how how do I actually live out this faith, this story, and how does this story shape my imagination and my engagement with the world? So those are the kind of resources that I've tried to be part of crafting and and really passing down. Mm. You know, I didn't really write Common Prayer. We right. compiled a bunch yes. of stuff that lots yeah, of people yeah. have written. Some of it yeah, yeah. is 2,000 years old. Some every it, every some scribe years old. Yeah, yeah, every scribe brings out of his, his <laughs> yeah. storehouse something old yeah, and something, old something new. new. Yeah. The newest thing about that is probably that it's, um, I think it's the most uh, intercultural, interdenominational prayer resource that, well, at least that I've ever been familiar with. I mean, there, there might be others, but we, we were very intentional about drawing from, you know, Orthodox yes, and Catholic yes, yes. on the one hand, all the way to, you know, Pentecostals yeah. and, and, you know, very free church. And I'm, and I'm so intrigued by, by what, what does that mean? Like, what is it? What does it mean now that we can swap and, sh- mm-hmm. you know, there's there's this kind of potluck going on <laughs> yeah. at the grassroots level. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I, I refer to myself as uh, as an ecumenical bastard mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. sense of being, being fed and born out of spiritual ha- houses that are not yeah. properly, formally married into each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but there's this... Yeah. There's this thing that's birthing not just me, but a whole whole bunch of us. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it seems to me that the people that were trying to name that moment, maybe more like a decade ago, like the word emergence I was hearing everywhere. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not hearing that as much. I don't know if that's because I'm not paying attention or, or is it just that it's just one more sort of label that slips off a an animal that's just too slippery to to hold like do you maybe i mean do you have names or 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 categories of thought that you place on this this very inter- I think I would call it grassroots ecumenism you know it's it's the fact that the you know 
the Lutherans and the Catholics could eat dinner together a long time before they could make a joint statement on Holy Communion or whatever that statement yeah, was yeah. that they were able to get together and make. So um, people who share life together find ways to navigate their difference. And I don't think those people deny the difference. I, you know, I've, I've lived in community with all sorts of people. I, I, I don't pretend that we aren't different. But, um, but you know, there's a way at the human level that I can say, you know, you and I are different and yep. we like yep. each other and we can live together. Right. Um, so I think there is a resistance, though, to, to kind of a big umbrella that looks like a kind of, uh, you were mentioning logos earlier, and I think there's a great deal of branding yep. that yep. we have to navigate and resist uh, in terms of that being the trend of neoliberal global capitalism. And you know, if 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 those forces are always trying to say, well, you're you know, are, you're a McDonald's Christian or you're a Burger King Christian, mm. then, <laughs> then, then then maybe you know, some people who really get it, and maybe a lot of people basically get it, and are saying, I, I don't want to be a any brand Christian. I just want to be a Christian, or maybe I just want to be a person of faith. Like I just want to be living out what yeah. I've tried to learn from whatever sources are available to me. And um, I mean, the yeah, part of the reality of our you know, deeply interconnected world is that we do have an opportunity to, I think, genuinely engage with lots of different streams. I mean, it's not like people are just, uh, sometimes people call it a, like a buffet, like you're just sort of picking oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. off the things yeah. that you like. Or yeah, yeah. No, I think lots of people actually do get deeply formed in their, you know, the evangelical church they were raised in, the Catholic, you know, Jesuit school where they went to college, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, circle of Jewish friends that they ended up working with or being in some kind of movement with. And, and all of these things are informing who they are. And, um, you know, do, do you have to have a logo for that? Uh, or, or can it be, uh, well, again, just a sort of grassroots, um, and I think people want to associate with something because it uh, it helps to shape our identity. And I understand that, you know, we, we need something larger than ourselves to associate with. Uh, so, again, I'm not against movements that take on a name or a charism or a character, but I do think that it's very easily manipulated and exploited. And part of what you were saying with the whole emergent stuff that happened is that I... I think it, you know, ended up being about, you know, books and conferences and, mm. you know, th- these things, which people did, of course, for the, for the genuine reasons of, you know, wanting to gather people and have conversations. But the thing that I consistently hear from, you know, the millennial generation is that their primary value, our primary value in these days is authenticity Mm. and nothing Mm. makes something feel inauthentic like you know Mm. slapping a logo on it and saying Mm. you can have it for 1995 here's the t-shirt yeah um huh huh so because i I, and i don't think that that's just a a sort of you know cool factor thing i think people get it that when something is corporatized it becomes a tool of this economy that has patterns that are incredibly difficult to resist. So. I remember an indigenous elder who said, if you can sell it, it's not sacred. Yeah. All right, halftime. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case. 
pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation, or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. Alana wanted to ask you a question about family uh, in community. You live in a, in a kind of place that has done the radical thing of naming non-biological mm-hmm. uh, re- relations family. Mm-hmm. And you're raising biological family in the middle of that. Yeah. Tell me a bit about the riches and, and also maybe the pinch points of, of that choice. Yeah. So Lee and I have, our oldest son is adopted. We have two biological kids. So that's our nuclear family. And um, all of them have lived their whole lives with us in um, community, in the, in the root house. So it's the only life they know which makes it hard for them to, you know, hold it against anything else. Although occasionally we visit, you know, family or something. And when they were younger, some, a couple of them asked, uh, why is it so quiet here? Uh, you know, when they were, when they were younger. Um, so they notice the difference. I don't, yeah, know, I don't yeah. know that they can evaluate it. Uh, it's what they've known. I think it's been a gift to them to always be around all kinds of people, some of whom they know well, and you know, also always be meeting new people. They have different personalities, like all people. So, uh, you know, they don't engage the community the same way. But, um, but as I watch them growing up, they do seem to be, you know, kids and now young adults who uh, can interact with people. Mm. Uh, who are not like them. There's, mm. there's not an awkwardness there for them. Um, and that seems to be a gift. I think it's a challenge uh, for them sometimes, especially uh, kids who have uh, more of a need for quiet and you know space to decompress or be creative or whatever that personality need might be. I think, uh, you know, being in a busy household with mm. lots of other people, you have to learn, you know, spaces and how to, so we've, we've, we've had to learn a lot. And I think they've all been able to find rhythms and spaces that work for them and work for them at different times as they grow up. I think one of the things we've learned in community that I would want to share with other people who are, you know, experimenting in kind of ways of organizing households is that we, we've, um, tried different things and, and, and really learned that families do have a rhythm that um, that that has a kind of force to it and mm. it's in our experience it's really hard to hold the rhythms of two families together in a household just you know in terms of like daily schedule of you know having 
meals and meetings and this sort of stuff, uh, and just, you know, kind of paths crossing at different times. And yeah, the kind yeah. Of, so, so we, we largely live, uh, we, we, yeah, we, we kind of have it as a, as a, not a written rule, but a kind of standard practice that we, we do community with one family in a house and multiple single people of different generations. Uh, so I live in a household with my family and with a guy in his 30s and a woman in her 40s and a guy in his 60s. Uh, but they are single people who are willing to navigate the rhythms of our family. And mm. that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah. that, that works out well. Uh, I do know that uh, some communities have worked really hard to uh, kind of sync the rhythms of families in one household. I think you have to, for whatever reason, really think that that's part of your calling to do it. It, it, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, to, yeah, no doubt. I think I think one of the reasons why I I tend to trust the mix that you're experimenting with is that you're you're in conversation with this. This wide networked ecumenical grassroots ecumenism, mm-hmm. but you've you've chosen a place and mm-hmm. some people uh, with some very specific rooted com- commitments. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed on your in preparation for this this weekend uh, that you limit your speaking engagements away from mm-hmm. home to four days out of the month. Mm-hmm. What are you saying yes to by saying no to, you know, the, the maximum mm-hmm. number of engagements you could be doing as a public speaker? Well, I'm saying yes to my wife who <laughs> wants to, you know, share life, uh, our family, our kids who, you know, I want to be there with, a community of people who, um, you know, one of the things I've learned in our neighborhood is I went to college and uh, I think, you know, for the best of intentions, we all got told that your job was, you know, something about who you are and, you know, you ought, you ought to discover this uh, this core of who you are and connect it to your work and that that's vocation mm, mm, and mm. that's living into God's plan for your mm, life mm, and mm. this whole thing. And... Uh, I think I, you know, I lived in our neighborhood for a while before I realized nobody believes that here. Nobody thinks that their work is who they are. Huh. Like, I mean, these are people who have had to do all kinds of things for work. Some people are nurses. Some people, you know, work at the gas station. Some people, you know, have temp jobs that are always rotating. Uh, Some people get real good jobs that are consistent. They do them for 30 years. But they still don't think, like, this is who I am. Their identity is in their family and in their community and, uh, you know, hopefully at best in the church and its vision for who, who God wants people to be. But, um, but I think it's really a class thing, right? Like the educated class has been persuaded that our, uh, identity is in our work. And so, you know, to be able to do as much possible of the work that you feel called to is like to be a f- completely fulfilled human being. And uh-huh. I just don't believe that. I just believe to be able to be with my people and to navigate well all of the challenges that we're facing at the neighborhood level is what it means to be a human being. And uh, you can't do that without being there. 
I also want I, I enjoy you know being here connected with you listening to sure other sure yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, you know I don't I, I don't deny that yeah uh, yeah it's an important part of my life but it doesn't tell me who I am a lot of folks especially Christian progressive these days or, or any kind of progressives since the election of Donald Trump, there's a sense of... Who is he again? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the orange one. Um, deep angst mm-hmm. uh, and, and a sense of we, like nothing, nothing in, the, in the halls of power reflects mm-hmm. our values at all anymore mm-hmm. and, and deep sense of alienation. I'm guessing that your friends and neighbors in the black community might have a longer familiarity yeah. with <laughs> welcome with that to s- our world. <laughs> right. And and so what is it what is it that you're learning from the black church mm. that can help us keep our heads, keep our perspective mm-hmm. particularly as as we're confronted by this yeah extremism that just i mean i mean he says i mean i you know it makes me makes me want to chew my arm off uh and i'm i don't even live in your country it is extreme sunday after he was elected the male chorus was on at church the male chorus sings once a month there's no one in the male chorus who's under uh 60 maybe 65 so it's a choir full of black men you know who lived through jim crow yeah who get up to sing the first song they sing? I'll be all right. Mm. I'll be all right. Mm. I'll be all right after a while. After a while. <laughs> you know, so you know, part of what I've learned is that there's some people that have been in this a long time. Yes, <laughs> and yeah, I know the songs to sing and how to hold on to hope. I, th- oh. I think that's actually really important for progressives because the great danger. That I mean, I, I'm glad there's a resistance. Yes, uh, yes. Donald Trump has exposed the extremism yes. of yes. the Republican Party in most parts of the country, uh, but it's not new. It's I mean, uh, Strom Thurmond brought the Dixiecrats into the Republican Party in 1968, and they've been there ever since. They've been using race to pit people against each other ever since. Uh, I mean, the tactics Sorry, about, for those Dixiecrats... So those, the, yeah, so Dixiecrats were people who Southern who, who, people in, who had been in the South, whose primary political motivation was to keep black people in their place. So after the Brown decision in 1954, uh, there was a there was a political and cultural movement to keep black folks down, to keep black folks from having political power, and just the idea of them getting an equal education was threatening enough that these folks mobilized. So, so, so Strom Thurmond was the Dixiecrat candidate for president. I mean, mm. you know, we're talking about white supremacy a lot these days. Like mm. this, this man ran on white supremacy. Like, like he, he was their man. Uh, this is who I worked for when I was a teenager. He was the senator from South Carolina at the time. Wow. The Republican senator from South Carolina. And he brought all those Dixiecrats into the Republican party to support Richard Nixon in 1968. Cause Richard Nixon had mastered the language of segregation in non-racial terms, right? So Wallace was never going to be president, although all these people had voted for Wallace the last time around. Uh, Wallace was never going to be president because everybody in the rest of the country sort of cringed when he said the N-word, and he said it all the time. Mm. So Nixon was smart enough to realize that if he used words like forced busing 
uh, entitlement programs, right. you know, lower taxes, but all of which were about, you know, shrinking government and privatizing things so that black people and white people have to be together in these, in these public ventures. Uh, that, 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 that was the uh, whole program. Uh, so that, that has energized a huge segment of not just the Southern population, but the whole country for 50 years. The only thing Donald Trump brought new to that is an unfamiliarity with the way in which Republicans had agreed to talk about it. So they called him, you know, this kind of political maverick. He's coming from the corporate scene. And, uh, and, and he, he, he does, doesn't do dog whistle politics. He, he just does he, he bulldog, believe, he doesn't believe bad the, dog. He doesn't believe in the dog whistle. He picked up the bullhorn, right? Like he, huh. and, uh, and those people loved that. It would not have been possible without eight years of America's first black president, you know? Yeah. But what, what he realized as a marketer, the only thing he's ever done successfully is market. Huh. What he realized as a marketer is, I can sell racism Woo! better than anybody. Mercy. And after America's first black president, that's what people want to buy. That's what white people want to buy. So, I mean, Mercy. You, know, you can say all you want about the economic anxieties and such of the white working huh. class, but, but, but look at the data. The, the average Trump voter, you know, makes $72,000 a year and the support for Trump among white people held across class from lower class to middle huh. class to the highest upper class. These folks were voting for him, not because they're necessarily, you know, that kind of rabid segregationist that was ready to vote for Strom Thurmond 50 years ago, but because their whiteness is so pervasive that they did not see his racism as something that would disqualify him to be president of the United States. And any black person will tell you, well, that racism is more dangerous than, than you know, the, the racism of the sort of quiet moderate is worse than, uh, than than the racism of the person who's willing to spit in your face. Because as Malcolm X used to say, you know, in the South, at least I know they hate me. You know, you know at least wow. when, you, when you'll talk about it, you, yeah. can, you can have the conversation. So, I mean, in some sense, we're having the conversation again in the United States right now. And I think that that at least has the potential to help people see the pattern and therefore recognize the intersections that we were talking about earlier of, um, you know, the way racism has has not only hurt black people, but has hurt immigrant communities, it's hurting Muslim people, it's hurting poor white people. The, the, the areas where the most poor white people are suffering in the United States right now are areas where racist very explicitly racist candidates have gained power and used their power to cut the kind of government-based programs that would help those people out of poverty, right? So the things like a living wage and, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, guaranteed health care and uh, good public education has been dramatically cut in those so, so-called red counties and red states where uh, people have used racism to get into power. That hurts more white people than anybody because just in raw numbers, there are more white people in those places. You're really calling your people out. Well, you know, I am the product of a red town in a red county in a yeah, red state, yeah. and I love my people. You know, huh. I was raised by people. Huh. 
who were deeply convinced that all of this was actually about being good Christians. And that, I think, is in the Christian community where the deepest problem is exposed. The fact that, yes, you know, not only did the racism not disqualify Donald Trump for most white people, the racism didn't disqualify Donald Trump for most white Christians. Yes. And the white Christians voted for him in larger numbers than most any other subgroup of white people that you could pick. Uh, 81%, I think, was the, was the number. So that means that there's an imagination that has been cultivated in which the gospel has actually been associated with this kind of division of people and exploitation of people to benefit uh, people who look like you and me. And uh, if that's the case, then I think it's incredibly difficult for people I love to actually know Jesus, right? Because, mm. because the gospel that has been preached to them is not the gospel of Jesus. Mm. It's a mm, it's mm. a gospel of white identity. And, you know, if you're confused enough, if you've been misled enough to believe that the gospel is actually the good news that you're better than your black and brown neighbors because you're white, mm. then you can't believe the good news that Jesus has died for each and every one of us and has called us into a beloved community where we can know uh, a new reality about the world. You can't believe both of those things, right? It's got to be one or the other. So if one has been called the gospel, then it's incredibly difficult to... to how do you evangelize people who already think they're yeah. Christian? So someone like Chris Hedges, he wrote a book mm, a decade or more ago about the, the yeah. religious right in America. Mm-hmm. and He was on to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so he he advocates that that people like yourselves uh, kind of retake the ground of language that the church has had for a long time mm-hmm. for naming things that look like and dress like Christianity, mm-hmm. but that are in fact a, a very dangerous mm-hmm. facsimile. Yeah. Heresy yeah. is a word that he says we should be using. Uh, he he talks about Christofascism as mm-hmm. opposed to yeah. Christianity. Are those are those helpful terms at this time? Like, is is it is it helpful to retake that language, or does it, I'm caught between the urgency of the moment and something else Jesus says about the log in my eye versus the speck in the other? And well, I don't think Jesus was afraid of. Uh... Uh, stark language. No, indeed. Language that clarifies difference. So, you know, when someone is proclaiming that the message of Jesus is the message of white supremacy, it's heresy. It is. Quote, unquote. Uh, Franklin Graham has proclaimed heresy. I heard him do it. He said progressives are atheists, thereby suggesting that to you know, the only way to be Christian is to uh, believe in his conservative political ideology. That's heresy. We should say that. But I don't think most people in the pews are like Franklin Graham. Hmm. I think most people in the pews hmm. are pretty confused. 
hmm. you know, pretty confused about the fact that Franklin Graham says some things that kind of sound weird to them. Yeah, yeah. But his daddy was this preacher that we all saw on TV, and you know, it seemed like he was just talking about Jesus. So what most people are actually stuck in is this belief that that well, faith is actually just about this little part of my life that I do on Sunday morning, and you know, it it, it makes me feel better at funerals because I know I'll see him again and that kind of thing. But so in that case, I mean, I, I don't want to come at somebody like that saying, you know, you're caught in a heresy. You need to come out of a heresy. Uh-huh. I need to say, I want you to live into the fullness of what the gospel means. And it's so much more than, you know, just your personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not trying to take your personal relationship with Jesus from you. I want it to be as personal as you can make it. Spend, you know, spend mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. in in conversation with Jesus, just like Brother Lawrence did mm. that. Do mm. that all the time, but let's but let's talk about you know if you're talking to the Jesus who was talking in the Bible, then he talks he, he ought to be talking back to you about all kinds of stuff like like you know do you give to whoever asks um, do you love your enemy uh, when you know when you see that Samaritan you know let's just be clear that's the undocumented person mm-hmm. that's that's your Muslim neighbor that you know that's whoever yes. you think is other uh, when you see them. Uh, are you drawn to be with them in the way that Jesus says you need to be if you're going to be part of the kingdom? Or, you know, are you just saying that somebody else's Amen. problem? Amen. So, I mean, I, I do think we need to use clarifying language. I also think we need to pastorally reach out to people who have been misled. And thankfully, we have the technologies to do it. Hmm. Part of the reason that people have been so misled, this must be said, is that Franklin Graham's Christianity has been corporately sponsored since at least the 1930s. Hmm. Because the corporate giants Hmm. after the Great Depression realized that the social gospel was actually getting in the way of the kind of capitalism they wanted to pursue. And after the Great Depression, they had no credibility in public life. The corporations did. Yes, yes. Because everybody lost money on the the, uh, collapse. Buy some preachers. So they bought preachers. Yeah. Kevin Cruz tells this story in his book, One Nation Under God. They literally created organizations that were highly funded from the corporate. So corporations sponsor nonprofits that then reach out to preachers and convince them to to sell this pro-free market uh, individualistic gospel. And they gave them awards for the sermons that they could preach. Mm. And they'd print them in magazines and they'd send that magazine to, you know, they had a network of 20,000 preachers, part of this group called Spiritual Mobilization. That was just one of them. That is the engine that heard Billy Graham preaching and said, we got to put that man Woo! in the circuit. We got to put him in coliseums. Huh. They funded all of that. So Franklin Graham has a megaphone that has been sponsored by corporations for decades. And he's using it to preach heresy. Uh, that's as much why Donald Trump was elected as anything the Republican Party did. Alana wanted to ask you a question about uh, leadership, and uh, she was talking. She was quoting someone I forget who uh, about healthy hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And it, this question also had to do with privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, might have it might the jumping off point for her might have been. The, the public uh, witness that you performed when you panhandled mm. publicly mm. after that was made illegal in mm. your neighborhood. Yeah. And you, who don't, I assume, generally have to panhandle, right. yeah. uh, panhandled to make a point. Yeah. 
which was an act of solidarity, but that also, you know, your own privilege and yeah, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely, and, um, is yeah. is is in, is inextricable with it. What are the ways in which you try to sort of lay at the feet of your neighborhood and your community some of the the privilege that yeah. you've inherited as a well-educated white Christian male? Yeah. And then what are but there all there are gifts that you carry, Jonathan, as someone who is a well-educated white Christian male mm-hmm. that you can lay on the altar, as it were, as yeah. as a gift. Yeah. How how do you how do you think about that? How do you practice that? Yeah, our, our city council passed a a city law policy outlawing panhandling and. It was never in the newspaper. We didn't even know about it. When we talked, when we asked some of them about it, they said they didn't even understand it. That it was part of some like omnibus thing that they had signed. Oh yeah, they city, city managers stuck it in there. Recommendations from yeah. you know staff and stuff. But anyway, you do have to take responsibility for what you sign. Vote for it. So they did uh, when, when we brought it up. But, but the reason we learned about it was that uh, people were being arrested and uh, started telling us that they were, you know, getting either told by the police or they actually started handing them this little bulletin that said, you know, this is now against city code, blah, 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 and you can't do it anymore, and if you do it again, we'll arrest So people were getting arrested, and um, so we we went to them and uh, talked to them about it. I, there's a group of folks who, who uh, live in the woods by a major intersection, which is where we actually did the panhandling, and... Um, they have lunch together. Literally live in the woods yeah, they year round. Camp, they have an encampment. And uh, so I went over there and had lunch with them to talk about it because I wanted to understand yeah. how it was impacting them and I wanted to understand what they wanted in, in, to do in response. Because, uh, you know, it, it certainly was a justice issue, but it was a justice issue that was weighing on them. And and uh, I was only aware of it even because of them. So I, I wanted to get their feedback. And they and they said that um, that they... They wanted to see it changed, and that they would appreciate any support to challenge it. So, um, so we thought that civil disobedience would be a way to leverage the visibility of, you know, ministers in the community. Who, you know, I mean, I I know the people on city council. I, I knew the police chief at the time, and so I called him and said, uh, you know, I want you to know that um, we're going to be here breaking the law. And, hmm. you know, if you really believe you need to enforce this law, you can come arrest us. And, uh, you know, he kind of hemmed and hauled. He didn't want to, he didn't want to make a scene out of it. And he didn't, he didn't send anyone to arrest us. Uh, but they knew we were there. And, um, the council members knew that this really was a problem. And so they began pretty much right away to, uh, change the, the, the law. It didn't take very long to get it off the books. So it, it, that is just one situation, but, it does seem to me to be an example of where we do have to be responsible and uh, faithful to the relationships that we have. And to, um, I mean, I had to believe that our city council people, though they had been careless, uh, didn't, mm. didn't intend mm. for this to be the, the result. Know, implication, the result of their action. So, so, so I, I did have some faith. That, mm. that they were willing to make amends for it. And, and I was able to communicate that to people who were really suffering for it. And, and I said to them, but look, you know, 
they don't do anything quickly. So this is, and, and the police, you know, their job is to enforce the code. So they, they're going to keep, you know, harassing you about this. So I had a conversation with them and along with other people about like, how can we best, you know, stand with you and be your neighbors as we go through this? And, um, and you know, some of these are people we've known for a long time. Some of them are people who, you know, don't want to come out of the woods. Like they've chosen to mm-hmm. live, to live that kind of independent lifestyle. So, so yeah, we, so we did, we did the civil disobedience and we, we begged and, uh, I was, I was actually pretty impressed. I was out there for two hours and, uh, and I was given a hundred dollars in two hours. So I gave that to the guys who usually do it. And, and I, and I learned that they do it there for, uh, you know, for that reason. It's a, just the high traffic volume. Yeah, uh, it yeah. turned out that, you know, people were actually pretty generous. Um, the people who are That's generous, interesting. Though, I, this was a fascinating thing too. You know, I mean, I had two hours to just watch who's going to give me money. I'm holding yes. the sign all the yes. please help. Um, it was almost exclusively, uh, laborers, people who work, uh, huh. you know, in work trucks coming home from work. We did it at rush hour and, uh, and you that know, is dollar, $2, $5, you know, yeah. the people who, you know, pay yeah. for their lunch out of the cash in their pockets were willing to reach in their pockets and hand that to the, I think it's a regular practice for people, folks in big fancy cars who pay for everything with credit cards. Didn't ever look at us, didn't roll down their window. Yeah. You know, no response at all. So, uh, it, it, it was, um, a little introduction into the the kind of class divisions that um, that divide our city, and uh, and I think you know part of recognizing Vincent Harding taught me to to both say you know there are differences, but to question the way they're named. He said, uh, "Why do you call it a privilege that you're descended from people who own people who look like me? Why is that a privilege? What's the privilege in that?" You know, he wanted to interrogate this, even the way that we name. Yeah, yeah. uh, And so, I think to recognize the divisions and the relationships that people have and to try to be faithful um, to relationships that you have because of where you grew up, because of where you went to school, because of uh, where you live and who you work with and all all those things. I think in a community, we have to be about um, trying to faithfully walk with uh, those folks that we know from those different sectors. So I think it's a lifelong journey and we've all got a lot to learn. Do you consider yourself a leader in your community? Do other people name sure. you as a leader? Is yeah. that is that a is that a, in any way formalized? Uh, yeah, I mean I think I think people do things because of leadership and the only way to lead anything is to be you know to be granted the opportunity to do that uh you know we're here at this monastery i led a workshop this weekend yeah uh, yeah not because no one else in that circle could have led that workshop but because the circle asked me to lead it this weekend right Mm. so that's so that's how i understand leadership uh it's uh it's it's being entrusted to guide people through a particular process or a particular thing. And the, the Root House community has tried over the years to name gifts and to call people to lead us in different ways. Yeah, so yeah. we've had administrative leaders, hospitality leaders, people who uh, I'm, I'm often called upon to lead in terms of the community's relationship with the neighborhood and with the public. With, with uh, the wider world. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't like. Is there a title attached with that? Like, uh, are, are you are you the uh, public 
public yeah, what is I, what does love look like in public leader is that we've named the role we've never given them titles but it, we're small and yeah know, I, i'm not against titles but I, yeah 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 I, I don't i don't think it's so much about um i don't think it one of the, one of the reasons why the title i don't think matters that much is that it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about vocation and how we understand our identity like mm. to, to to be called to lead is is important if you belong to your community. Uh, no one who really belongs to their community is going to say no when the community needs them to do something they can do. Uh, huh. But to, but to, you know, to emphasize titles, and this is at any level, yes, yes, is to really make it about some sort of individual self improvement program or you know advancement uh-huh, uh-huh. of career or uh-huh. climbing a ladder that that ultimately isn't about what the aim of the position is and uh in fact it it undermines it, it. undermines it yeah and i think we see that in public life and we see it in yes. church life uh, yes and in, in so many ways um uh, we deeply need leadership we have a we have a vacuum of leadership in our culture so i'm not anti-leadership yeah I do, but i am is that is that vacuum of is it the vacuum of leadership or i mean you just talked about leadership as Something that can only be leadership if if there is a is there a people a people and a belonging and yeah. a belonging yeah. that can name and uh, yeah. Yeah. I I see a lot of gifted people around me that it's it's hard to f- like it's just such a, I mean you, you you write about the need for stability in our yeah. age it's it's when you're rootless when you're when each of us is just kind of at you know the, the the hub of this vast network that we each kind of manage as our you know like our you know our facebook yeah. friends and this is who i connect with on this mm-hmm. issue and that issue mm-hmm. and but i don't have a a body of people that can yeah. say no, i think yeah there's a great disintegration of community we still have institutions that exist to serve peoples that are largely fragmented and and not cohesive anymore and what i what i mean by uh, the vacuum of leadership is that I think those institutions are being led largely by these kind of strongman characters mm. who step into them because mm. of, of this uh, of this disconnect between the institutions and the positions and a a people who could both call someone to that and hold them accountable. Uh, I mean, to get back to the election in the mm. United States, um, you know, it's it is a huge problem. That Donald Trump is the president. Uh, it's tied up with many, many other problems that made him possible. Uh, but it's also simply a fact that a majority of Americans did not elect him. Right. Uh, and I'm not just talking about the Electoral College. I'm talking about the fact that almost half of Americans who could have voted didn't. Uh, th- there's just not a public that yes. understands itself to be connected to that institution. And so... Uh, the people who are suffering the most from the fact that he is president, many of those people did not vote because they just don't consider themselves part of that in any way that would you know bear them taking the 30 minutes or hour or whatever it would to stand in line and vote. That's the kind of reintegration and community building at the local level that has to be done in order to, uh, in order to have communities and leaders that are accountable to one another so getting someone to engage in the 
the big public, I, I think I'm hearing you saying, can really start with saying hello on the street corner and recognizing it's, one another as, as having a voice huh. just, just here in this place. Yeah. And then it's always only local. Uh, yeah. Political operatives understand that. You don't, you don't win presidential elections by, you know, doing the stuff that most of us see on TV. It's not the debates. I mean, those are big media events. Yeah. But, but you win elections uh, by organizing counties. That's, that's, I mean, yeah. and the Republican Party is actually pretty good at that. They, yeah. they understand yeah. how that yeah. works. Uh, it, it is about building a base. But, but again, that, that, that base is not the majority of people in no, those communities. But the majority of people are barely talking to yeah, each other. It's, it's the majority and, of people and, who have uh, money in those communities and therefore care yeah. about the way that the policies are going to impact their money. Yeah. Hmm. Something I wanted to do at the beginning, but mm-hmm. we can still do now. Mm-hmm. I think at the at the ferment, we we want to resist to some degree the way in which internet communication can dislocate and disembody Mm -hmm. the conversation. Mm -hmm. Let's just take a moment just to name the physical place where you and I are touching the earth right, right now. And and maybe name one thing about the place that is distinctive to you that you would like to lift up, be thankful for. Oh yeah. It's great to get to be here. We're in, we're outside of Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, We're, uh, on the grounds of the Benedictine Monastery that's been here for uh, over a hundred years now. And um, I think one of the great gifts of this space is, I mean, anywhere you go where Benedictines have been for this long, uh, you, you notice a careful cultivation of uh, the land in relationship to the buildings. So mm. I, lo- I love to take walks where Benedictines have been because they, you know, there's always going to be a, a path that takes you to the cemetery, you know, where you remember those who've been here before. Mm. There's always going to be a garden. There's always going to be, you mm. know, this connection because um, because the whole way of life is about balance and about, you know, prayer and work, you know, uh, or at labora. And uh, that physically gets played out uh, wherever Benedictines live out the rules. So it's a, it's a beautiful place here, St. Benedictine. It is beautiful. And... Uh, this is Treaty One territory of the Anishinaabe, Cree, and uh, and Lakota peoples here. Okay. And then the Métis. And how far back does that go? Well, th- that goes back as far as we can dig and and remember. Okay. The Métis people are the people who are uh, form a unique culture here in this place, descended of the children of uh, French and Scottish fur traders who oh. married indigenous oh. women. And then develop their own language, their own dances, their own music, uh, huh. here in this place. Okay. In a, in a really interesting and quite a stable huh. marriage that lasts for a couple hundred years. So they're a kind of fusion culture. That's right. That grew up. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 Hmm. I think I want to name the river. This is the Red yeah. River the here. Red River, yeah. The Red River is this huge, lazy, prairie river that's quite, quite big by the time it's this far north. Uh-huh. There's not much slope here, so it moves slow, but it's powerful. But yeah. on a day like today, when the when the wind is coming from the north, it actually looks like it's flowing in the opposite direction. Huh. Which I mean, that could be a whole metaphor in its yeah. own. You know, on the surface, it looks like it's going one way, and then underneath, the current is massively huh. moving moving north. And it's the reason the lights are on in this room, and 
the reason that the electricity in this microphone and this computer are working because there's hydropower. There's there's a tragic side. I mean, many, many people were flooded and displaced Mm. north of here, uh, indigenous people Mm. primarily, Mm. to make that happen. And so Mm. that's that's just one thing I want to name in this, this place, in this moment. Wow, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I want it's to, to uh, with you. Um, where can people get with your books, your speaking schedule? There's a website. I, I, I don't want my name to be a brand, but this is the way the internet works. There's a website that's just my name, yeah. <laughs> jonathanwilsonhargrove.com, and you can learn more there about what I'm up to and what I've written. Uh, I'm also, right now, as part of this moral movement in the U.S., um, uh, a part of the poor people's campaign that's happening all across the country. And so I would encourage folks to also learn about the poor people's campaign and go to uh, the website breachrepairers.org, which is the uh, the website for repairs of the breach. We have an, uh, a once-a-month gathering on the first Sunday of each month. Uh, it's live-streamed and podcast, so you can... Uh, listen to it live with a group of people at your church or community center or whatever. You can also listen to it on your phone or or anytime. Uh, It's called The Gathering, a time for reflection, revival, and resistance. And Reverend Barbara and I host that every first Sunday of the month. Bless you with that. Give give Franklin Graham a little run for his money. (laughs) Can I send you with a blessing? Oh, yes, please. All right. In the name of the one of whom it was said... He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Hmm. In the name of the one who accomplished this victory by an astonishing surprise that looked to everyone else like weakness, like failure. In the name of this one, we bless you, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, to bear the name of Christian to bear a cross-shaped love into the world, to shine like a city on a hill, to build up the beloved community, both in your household and in the public square. So may it be. So may it be. Amen. Amen. First podcast that ever prayed for me, brother. Thank you. All right. (laughs) How did we get so heartless? How did we get so cruel Lifting up such evil By scapegoating the poor So many wolves are in sheep's clothing With a Bible in their hand Broken hearted I've been leaving The lie on truth we stand You said, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek. But today I find it hard to tell how that could ever be. When the merciful are burdened and the mourners ridicule and the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. 
the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. Then I think about the time when God emptied into you, and you emptied into mocked and forgotten places too, and the poverty of God. Became the poverty of all. No matter what kings say, in their fear of being small, you said, "Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek." But today I find it hard to tell how that could ever be. When the merciful are burdened and the mourners ridicule and the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules, the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. How do I become meek and thirst with all the thirsty and let go of what I seek? Because the merciful are burdened and the mourners ridicule, and the bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. Yeah, we bystanders stand by and play by all the rules. The poverty of God became the poverty of all. No matter what kings say, in their fear of being small. We are the ferment. You are too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good. <laughs>